Rothbard takes on many history class darlings. Who do you think people would be the most shocked to hear Rothbard criticize from the revolutionary period? I would probably say the two people who, who would be shocked, at least before back in the day and then still now, would be either Benjamin Franklin, mm-hmm. who he considers very overrated and sort of an opportunist, or George Washington, because he considers him sort of an ineffective military commander. Transmitting directly from the launch pad. Bringing blue collar to your cell tower. The rock and roll libertarian himself. It's time to blast off with Johnny Rocket. Hey, this is Blast Off with Johnny Rocket, and I'm here with my real truth, Miss Raylene Lightheart. Ah, how's it going, Johnny? You know, I'm okay, except for I've been yeah. fighting my cat all week. I don't even like cats, but Kim has a cat, and I, I'm not claiming it's my cat, but this What's cat and I, Tuco, I, and I'll tell you what, this cat is my nemesis, I swear to God. Because I swear to God, I clean, we have, we have a litter box thing, right? So it's like me versus the litter box versus the cat. And every time, <laughs> so I clean the litter box out, you know, during the day. And I'm cleaning out the litter box, which I love doing to begin with. And as yeah. soon as I get everything cleaned up, cat comes in, does his business, and then likes to kick the litter all over the bathroom floor. So immediately after I clean it up, so it's just like this battle between me and the goddamn cat. I'm sorry my language, but yeah, it is absolutely crazy. I'm getting so sick of it, and this is happening every day. Every day. And it's I'm getting to the point where I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose it. This cat's going to be like, I'm, I'm not going to commit violence on the cat, but man, I just wish it would get lost or something. I don't know. Yeah, pretty soon <laughs> l- the little Ray can start uh, cleaning up. The, I know. The floors. I, know. You I just have him it, sweep up the litter for you. <laughs> I know, but it just seems to me like, oh, it's this is happening every time. It's like he waits for it to get cleaned, and then he'll just make a mess, and then I'm, I'll clean that up. And then so it's like kids or yeah, drunk like, husbands. Yeah. Five minutes <laughs> later, there it is. I'm like, Jesus, damn cat. Anyway, so uh, Raylene, I'm excited about the show. I know. I'm really excited too. Okay, episode fifty-four. And as the Mises page explains, Conceived in Liberty is a detailed narrative history of the struggle between liberty and power. But it is more. Rothbard offers a third alternate to the conventional interpretive devices against those on the right who see American Revolution as a conservative event and those on the left who want to invoke it as some sort of proto-socialist uprising. Rothbard views this period as a time of accelerating libertarian radicalism. Through this prism, Rothbard illuminates events as never seen before. Rothbard's ambition was to shed new light on colonial history and the show the struggle for human liberty was the heart and soul of this land from its discovery through culminating event of the American Revolution. These volumes are a force enough to establish Rothbard as one of the great American historians. Our guest is Patrick Newman. He's an assistant professor of economics at Florida Southern College. He received his PhD in economics from George Mason University in 2016. He is the editor of Murray Rothbard's The Progressive Era, which was released in 2017, as well as the editor of Murray Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty, Volume 5, The New Republic, 1784 to 1791, which is forthcoming this year in 2019. His research interests are in Austrian economics and American economic history. Okay, Raylene, prepare for liftoff. Copy that, Johnny. Covers, tie-downs, and grounding cables. Removed as required. Communications connected. Check. Preamps in the green. Check. Cold beer. Double check. Thrusters are hot. Raylene, are you ready to rock? All systems go, Johnny. Let's blast off with Patrick Newman! Bam! 
rocket ship before. Yeah, here uh, we go. <laughs> here we go. Yes, we're taking this off into space. Yeah. So, so, Dr. Newman, really quick, for our listeners who are maybe not familiar with Murray Rothbard, who is Murray Rothbard? What is he known for? And could you explain to our listeners what he did, what significance did he have in not only libertarianism, but for economics and history? Yeah, sure. So Murray Rothbard is basically a uh, important Austrian economist as well as a libertarian theorist. So he lived from about the 1920s, 1926. He died in 1995. Uh, so he's a very prominent uh, political philosopher, economic theorist, economic historian. So he's very big in Austrian economics as well as libertarianism. He wrote a lot of fundamental uh, works in both of these uh, sort of disciplines. He was instrumental in the initial sort of founding and, and uh, promotion of the Libertarian Party. Yes. And uh, he's, he's basically one of those, one of the major thinkers that generally kind of gets overlooked, but recently he's had an enormous revival. So he's sort of one of those guys who's more popular after his death than before. It's like Kurt Cobain, right? Or, you know, there's a lot of guys like nobody, you know, there's a lot of people like Nirvana, but he didn't get really big until after he died. That sucks because I don't want to be that guy either. You know, it's like I want to enjoy the fame while I have it. All right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Ray. <laughs> well, what do you do as an assistant professor of econ? And can you tell me about your take on the college experience for young people learning about Austrian economics? And does it change them? Sure. So I'm a, uh, so like I said, economics professor, and I basically teach. Uh, so I'm at like a small liberal arts uh, school. So uh, it's a teaching school. I live outside of Tampa. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, the college experience, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely changing. Yeah. Uh, this yeah. might be scary for both of you guys. It's certainly scary for me. This incoming freshman class, uh -huh. just in general, statistically, mm -hmm. they will have not lived a day in the 90s. On wow. wow, that is crazy. Yeah, because they're all born in 2000, 2001. Oh, wow. Basically. Oh, my God. So, that is nuts. They don't even know Kurt Cobain. Who's Nirvana? Uh, they have a T-shirt, but they don't know what it means. <laughs> I, um, I'm i just curious what it's like teaching these young, barely formed ideas in these children that, that are probably not their own. Coming in and learning about Austrian economics, is that a culture shock for them? Or do they pick it up and believe you? I mean, do you have to fight them to, to make them learn? What's it like? So I don't necessarily teach Austrian economics, uh, you know, sort of overtly or directly, mm -hmm. uh, mainly at least given the classes I teach and the syllabi, you know, and that stuff. Like I just mm. sort of go with the, um, you know, just teach, if, if anything, I kind of teach more of the free market principles sort of. So Beautiful. in my class, I just teach the basics of economics and you instead try and go through that angle. Mm -hmm. I have taught classes in Austrian economics, uh, just not at this school. Uh, that's fun. That's definitely, you said, sort of a shock. Uh, but in general, just kind of like the basic economic way of thinking, thinking about like costs, you know, everything's not for free. Or like, right. oh, there's unintended consequences, just stuff like that. It's enough to sort of blow minds, especially because it's it's unlike what you hear about in other parts of the school or, mm -hmm. you know, in other you know, disciplines, you know, just everywhere, you know, the, everywhere. Uh, economics for all you can criticize it for. It's at least one of the more, quote unquote, in the broad spectrum, right leaning disciplines. Right. Mm -hmm. So that at least just provides a totally different approach. Beautiful. So Dr. Newman, how did you get involved in economics and was it Rothbard that it's been one of your influences or did you find him later in life? So I was in high school during the financial crisis. I was a senior, it was like fall 2008 and I got very interested. So I got interested in economics through Ron Paul. 
you know, mm-hmm. begins with Ron Paul. So yeah. right. And I read his, uh, you know, the, uh, I think it's the revolution and manifesto. And, uh, you know, I was very interested in that book and I found Mises.org and I, I quickly became familiar, you know, I familiarized myself with the writings of Murray Rothbard. So I knew about him from an early, uh, time as well as Austrian economics and libertarianism. Very cool. Yeah. Some say Rothbard's liberty versus power perspective provides for ultimate clarity when determining the motivations behind the colonial and revolutionary period events, which is what this book is all about. Um, Rothbard takes on many history class darlings. Who do you think people would be the most shocked to hear Rothbard criticize from the revolutionary period? So that's an interesting question. I guess it would depend on, um, so the original Conceit of Liberty that was published in the 70s was four volumes that ended with the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm working on is the unpublished fifth volume, and that kind of is in the constitutional era. I would probably say the two people who, who would be shocked, at least before, uh, back in the day, and then still now, would be either Benjamin Franklin Mm-hmm. who he considers very overrated and sort of an opportunist yeah, or George Washington, because he considers him sort of an ineffective military commander. Interesting. That is yeah. so cool. Yeah. Washington's always deified basically. Yeah. Uh, and you know, he's this great, you know, he's, you know, especially back in the day, you know, a little bit now he gets less, but he's still held in very high regard. Uh, and Rockford always sort of adhered to historians who said, you know, the, who basically our comparative advantage in the American Revolutionary War was guerrilla warfare. Yeah, right. and exactly. And always like pitch battles. So it basically didn't work out. <laughs> so, so what, what I thought was so interesting, though, is, okay, so this is what I thought was just great. Because in the Austrian magazine, which is a Mises publication, there, this is where I found out who you were, is I opened up this magazine and it was a story of deciphering Rothbard. And you are obviously working on or have finished Volume five of Conceived in Liberty, but there was an interesting story behind this book, and it's it's a fascinating story. That could you could just tell us about the story? And you basically had to, from my readings and understanding, you pretty much had to decipher Rothbard's writing, like it was on like legal yellow legal pads, the whole book, written handwritten, and no one could read his handwriting, and you actually deciphered it. Wow. Yeah, that, that's basically the story. So what happened was Rothbard, make a long story short, at least regarding the, the, the background, he was writing the series in the 1960s. And back in the day, at least his particular approach is you would handwrite it and then he would dictate it into a recording machine and someone would, a professional typist or someone uh, such as his wife, et cetera, they would uh, type it out. Because you got to imagine you're yeah. not using computers, you're using an old type, you know, typewriter it can get tedious when you're typing about, you know, you want to leave the kind of professionals. Right. So he was able to get the, in the seventies when he went back to the project, he was able to basically, you know, have the first four volumes typed out, but the recording machine, the records for the fifth volume broke. So he literally had like 600 pages of handwritten scrawl. Wow. You know, he was writing, I mean, but he's got footnotes, he's got block quotes and the whole thing. I don't know how this man didn't have like carpal tunnel. I mean, like it was just like, I mean, it just seemed like so much. And then what happened is he never returned to the project and then he died suddenly. And basically no one could read his handwriting. Uh, you literally look at it and, and you know, there's some pictures in the Austrian. And I mean, it, it, it's really like Byzantine. It's yeah. like yeah, it does. And I basically last summer, I, um, I had some initial help from the, from the archivist here uh, at the Mises Institute. But I said, all right, now I'm going to learn how to read this. And you go from like, 
you know, you look at a sentence and you try and get like a couple words and then you kind of move on, you get better from it. Or basically by the end, I was, I could read it sort of fluent. I basically had to read a language. And wow. it took <laughs> wow. a language and it took about like a month of solid translating. I mean, and it was grueling work because it was like the whole day you go to sleep, you see the words in your mind. Yeah. Uh, wow. the, the scribble. Um, I mean, even like some of the stuff he would, pluses would be, um, I mean, the whole thing was in cursive too. Right? <laughs> of course. It's very, yeah. you know, flowing, the words, <laughs> the letters, P's look like F's, G's look like O's, you know, all sorts of stuff. This is crazy. Would, His hand hurt. Yeah, he would write. Did you have like a Rosetta Stone? Something to kind of go off of. There was like you had some sort of comparative thing where, okay, here's his notes and then here's something that's actually typed to help translate his writing. Yeah, you have a, you have a key. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically a key to the puzzle, yeah. He just memorized it. He made the key in his mind. <laughs> yeah. Basically, no, I didn't have a Rosetta Stone. I just had to go off sort of earlier stuff. And, you know, earlier, like the, I would read a couple sentences. I would try and get it through. Then I'd move on. Then I'd like return back. The initial part, when I first started the project, because he basically typed about 60 pages out of, it was handwritten about 600 pages. So the whole book is about 300 pages. Mm-hmm. And initially, I, you know, obviously the typewritten stuff, like, all right, he can do that. He typed in Microsoft Word. And then when you get to the handwritten stuff, I was like, well, oh, crap. <laughs> I was fairly ready to, within like a day and a half, I had gotten like two sentences done. And I was ready to throw in the towel because I'm like, okay, like this is something I can return to like once I'm tenured or once I just have so much time on my hands. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then over the next couple of days, and it was a long week and I started to get it better. And I said, all right, maybe I can get through this thing. And basically with each day, I got better at reading it. So wow. uh, yeah, where at least, you know, at the end and I can still do it, you know, very, like I, I can read it fluently. Oh, what an exciting adventure. I bet that started getting your blood pumping and then more addicted to it and just, just keep pushing forward. Um, was it kind of organized already? So was it just basically you just had to translate it and it was already in book form? Or did you have to come in and make it make sense and put things into chapters? I mean, what was the format? Oh, that's a good question. So the, the book itself was more or less done. Uh, I mean, it, it was it was completely, like, he, he wrote at least a rough draft. So the Progressive Era, it's a combination, like, just give an example, it's a, a nine chapters of an unfinished book manuscript and then later essays that he wrote. So okay. the book itself is actually done. Like, he ends around the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt. Okay. So basically, like, 19, um, like 1908, 1909. Uh, for this, he ends where he wants. So he has a full rough draft. Uh, you had to, uh, you know, decipher it. And then, I mean, you obviously had to do copy editing and, you know, just, uh, all right, uh, like, you know, just maybe make some things a little bit, you know, grammar and punctuation and stuff. And uh, for some of it, I added in section titles because he just kind of had, he's like, I mean, from his mind, he hand wrote this whole thing. And then he said, all right, uh, once I have the type pages, all right, then I can a- add in sections and all sorts of stuff like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't require me to like finish writing any of the book or anything Ooh. like that. Wow. Ooh, I can imagine. A, that's it, was awesome. finished, it was a finished book. Wow. That's cool. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit of background behind the Conceived in Liberty you know, series and why did Rothbard write it? Because I mean, he was an economist first and foremost. And then he became a libertarian. But then he, he took on this whole thing of being, you know, modern day renaissance, man. He started going into history. Why did Rothbard write this book? 
Right. Yes, that's a great question. So in the 1950s, he spent a lot of time working on a project known as the book that was later published, Man, Economy and State, which Mm -hmm. came out in 1962. So he was writing, he had a research grant to write that in the 1950s. And with the end of the 1950s, early 1960s, he uh, basically got a research grant to write a full like volume, like 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 a giant book on basically American history from sort of a libertarian perspective. Mm-hmm. So the idea was that people said, you know, you have so many perspectives in the United States from a you know liberal perspective, less from sort of a conservative perspective, but you still have it usually more of like a neocon kind of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he was basically, he had this project where he was going to, he was supposed to be from five years from about like 1962 to 66, where he would work on this. Mm-hmm. And what happened is, even what, what happened to a lot of his projects, like even with the Man, Economy, and State, it was originally supposed to be a textbook. It became this whole, you know, multi-volume treatise, basically, on economic theory. Right. Um, Rothbard just basically kept writing and writing until basically by 1966, he more or less had literally like 1,600, you know, up to, I guess, all the, all included, but like 1,800 pages of um, stuff from 1607, which is the founding of Jamestown, oh, in man. Virginia, yeah, yeah. to 1789, which is the beginning of the U.S. You know, the U.S. Constitution or modern government. Right. So he's like, all right, I have this, and then basically the research grant ran out. He had to get a teaching job. He got preoccupied with other projects, and he never sort of finished the full, you know, because he originally was supposed to go to you know the 1600s to circa 1960, which was like the present time back in the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's where the whole project basically came into being uh, because he was also actually trained technically as an economic historian at Columbia. Like he wrote a dissertation on a, the panic of 1819, which is still well-cited and all of this stuff. So he had this skill, he had the knowledge of American history, but he just had an ability. I mean, he was a polymath in the modern sense of the term where you're just able to have the command such dominance in multiple fields. Right. Uh, That was definitely him. Wow. Wow. So something that you touched upon, uh, when Rothbard wrote about a new nation based on the liberalizing effects of the Enlightenment or or in the enlightened thinking, do you believe he intended to dismiss the ideas that are promoted with handpicked history lessons from both the left and the right? And are people threatened by this accounting of history that challenges both leftist and conservative history? Um, yeah, I mean, I, he definitely wrote it with a libertarian perspective in mind. He was oh, he was one of those historians, and he he said this on multiple occasions that you know he never liked it how people try and hide sort of their their perspective. So mm-hmm. in the name of being sort of value free or nonpartisan, they say, oh, I'm doing an objective study, but they kind of sneak in assumptions and perspectives and, and all of that. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was like, no, I'm doing libertarian perspective. And uh, whether or not, you know, that ruffles feathers, then so be it. And I mean, he knew he would uh, because and this was something that alienated him from the uh, the 1950s uh, conservative mood, or at least certain parts of it, is that he was always very critical of like an aggressive foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Really? So, big so, part and they didn't like that? Tell us more. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so guys like, I mean, he had falling out with guys like Bill Buckley and, and all of that, but yeah, so, I mean, he was someone who even, you know, in the American history, he was always portraying the United States as very expansionist, um, sort of proto-imperialists, 
uh, you know, expanding, which certainly ruffled kind of conservative feathers, but also sort of the liberal feathers because, you know, he would always interpret various actions as sort of being not as sort of like proto-Marxist kind of class struggles, mm-hmm. but sort of like in the libertarian upsurge, so to speak. And that always, that always, uh, you know, makes the leftists go bonkers, I guess. You know? <laughs> so that, you know, so he, he always knew he was grinding gears. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. It's like we don't get any love from anyone. And we don't even get love from each other. You know, we all hate each other, too. So we're just kind of by. Yeah, we're all by (laughs) ourselves. So what does Rothbard talk about that is of significance to the libertarians in the fifth volume? Like the Constitutional Convention, the U.S. Constitution, ratification of the Constitution. Could you explain about that? Yeah, sure. So I'm seeing the the first four volumes. We always go back to those. I mean, he has the whole American Revolution and all that stuff. And I kind of touched on that before. In the fifth volume, and this is... It's important because a lot of the stuff that he talks about is one, just not really discussed too much in general among uh, regular historians, or it's always kind of rushed through, like the 1780s. It's like, oh, yeah, we had the Articles of Confederation, they didn't work, and here we are. Right. And even among libertarians, the Constitution is always held up very highly, uh, where it's like, oh, the Constitution's a libertarian document. It's interpreted very, you know, a very limited fashion. So you have sort of like this specific, you know, there's this uh, enumeration of powers. You say, oh, the government's limited. This is what the founders intended and all of this stuff, et cetera. Right. And Rothbard's perspective on that is that basically that that's totally wrong. The Constitution was intended to expand, uh, you know, provide a much stronger government that was uh, possible over the uh, compared to the Articles of Confederation. And basically, in a sense, it was like a coup in the modern sense where you had a bunch of people. They say, OK, this isn't working. We're going to create a new a government, uh, a new document that you know could govern us. And then we're going to kind of have this ratification and we're going to, you know, just basically sort of dismantle the Articles of Confederation, not even by the rules that were that were laid down by it. Right. And, you know, so you have this perspective which isn't really spoken about too much because when it is. Historians say, oh, it was all for the good. Like, well, they needed to do that. You know, uh-huh. they were noble conspirators, basically. Right. You know, they had, the, they had the right idea and everything. And Rothbard spent some time in the book talking about, well, actually, it wasn't that bad in the 1780s. And problems were due to, you know, why it was bad was actually because of prior government intervention, uh, particularly, you know, raising taxes and printing money to fund the Revolutionary War debt. And one of the fascinating things he kind of touches on this is actually related to a book project of mine I'm working on. He talked he talks about this at the end is that so one bear in mind the Bill of Rights was not in the original Constitution. You had the Federalists who pushed for the Constitution, then you had the Anti-Federalists who were against it. Mm-hmm. And the Anti-Federalists wanted actual like severe structural amendments, things restricting taxing power, standing armies, mm-hmm. regulations. Right. Um, you know, things regarding elections, et cetera. And the Federalists sort of lied to them. They say, oh, yeah, we're going to have this Bill of Rights after, you know, we'll pass it after. And then they publish kind of more like personal liberty amendments, sort of, which are great, but it's not like, you know, what they were looking for, kind of. Okay. And in order to stay relevant, the anti-Federalists, basically, they became strict constitutionalists, where they said that, all right, the Federalists lied to us. They said this is a limited government, limited document. We're now going to interpret it that way. And so, you know, that's where you kind of get the modern, aside from some guys for various reasons like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, that's where you get the modern kind of constitutionalist 
So the strict constitutionalist, so to speak, nowadays is really an anti-federalist. You know, they wouldn't yes. have liked the Constitution when it was passed at the beginning. Well, yeah, it's mm-hmm. like Kevin Gutzman did talk about that. He said basically when we had him on our show a long time ago, he was basically saying that the Federalists or the Anti-Federalists were really Federalists. And the Federalists were really just monarchs. And, and that's how he explained it. I don't know if you what you agree, if you agree with that statement. Yeah, I'd like to hear your take on yeah, that. Yeah, no, I mean, strictly speaking, and Rothbard said the same thing, the Federalists were actually, quote unquote, nationalists. And that they wanted, they didn't want a federal, like when you think of a, a federal government, at least in the original sense, you think of basically a confederation. Right. So you have power dispersed among, say, the 13 states, and then they give some power to a central government. And then you have a relationship between the states and the central government to kind of balance each other out. Sure. Yeah. Now, the federalists, they were really in favor of a national government that could crush the power of the states. Uh, now, some of them wanted certain states to be in charge, like someone like James Madison was a nationalist, uh, but he was always very pro-Virginia. But they they mainly wanted a government that would have overriding power over the states. And then in order to kind of sell the federalism thing, they kind of said, well, the balance is in the government. So you have the three branches. You, have, you, you know, we're all taught this in like second grade or whatever. You know, you have the executive, yeah. the you know, judiciary, the legislature, you know, legislative and, and all that stuff. And now they check each other. Now, of course, the problem is, what's to prevent the three of them from getting together? <laughs> right. Because <laughs> the states yes. can't, can't basically check them. And that a whole bunch of political history behind that. But yeah, Kevin, I mean, that, that distinction is correct. The, but what happened is during the ratification debates, the nationalists basically called themselves federalists for tactical effect. And then they called the opponents anti-federalists. And that just doesn't sound as good. So naturally, you're already soured on the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the anti-federalists. Right. You know, it's the equivalent of one party being called the Republicans and the other parties called the anti-Republicans. Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's funny, man. No, you just look bad. <laughs> so yeah. basically, a, a social media movement is taking their cues from the same kind of well, manipulation yeah. of people's emotions. <laughs> exactly. It's like liberal now has nothing oh, to do yeah. with liberal, you know, liberals yeah. in the past. Yeah. 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 No, because one of the one of the interesting things when you look at the ratification base, and this is a huge uh, this is a huge advantage for the Federalists is that they basically had a very strong control of the newspapers back then. So obviously newspapers, you know, it's the 1780s. That's how you communicate with people, et cetera. And basically the, the Federalists uh, newspapers largely suppressed anti-Federalist documents or speeches or they kind of lied about them um even control of the mail so if you wanted to send like their post mail you know between like two anti-federalist leaders in one area it would take noticeably longer than the federalist uh so you know the federalist mail communication so yeah i mean in a sense yeah they are whether or not consciously but yeah they are um (laughs) taking taking a page from the from the Federalists. Oh, yeah, and it's scary. Hey, guys, make sure you check out America's fastest-growing number one pro-liberty radio program, Free Talk Live. Free Talk Live is on seven nights per week on 190-plus radio stations coast-to-coast, and it's pro-liberty every issue every time. So check out freetalklive.com. Again, that's freetalklive.com. Anyways, though, this is Johnny Rocket, always launching ideas, and we'll be right back with Patrick Newman after this commercial break. Rock and roll. 
listener, chances are some of you are business owners, entrepreneurs, or have a product that you're dying to bring to market. Well, there's something that you all have in common. You need a killer brand, website, and an all-around awesome design to stand out from your competition. Well, I have the solution for you. Invisible Hand Design. We've trusted them with Launchpad Media, Blast Off Branding, Liberty Force, and even my wife's presidential campaign website. They do not disappoint. Yeah, didn't they also do the branding for McAfee in 2016? Damn straight. So if your company's image could use a hand, go ahead and reach out to them. Right. They're even offering Blast Off listeners a 20% discount on their first project. Book your conversation with them at invisiblehanddesign.com forward slash blast off oh hell yeah and we can even do one better if you work with them we'll feature the project all over our social media page to give you a launch and a little extra rocket fuel in your engine anyway so that is invisiblehanddesign.com forward slash blast off again invisiblehanddesign.com forward slash blast off this is johnny rocket always launching ideas in your direction to Mr. or correction Dr. Patrick Newman here on the show. And it's just a fascinating show. We're talking about volume five of Conceived in Liberty and Dr. Newman actually deciphered Rothbard's handwriting and actually made the fifth volume that has hasn't been published in 40 years going to be available this year for the first time. And again, this is so exciting. This is exciting news because I I actually own the Conceived in Liberty you know, the, the volume that Mises put out. And it's like huge. It's a monstrous book. And it's kind of intimidating. I, I, I barely got for the first 200 pages, to be honest with you. It's an intimidating book. Uh, but thus far, as much as I've read, I thought it was just fascinating. I think it's a great book. And if you have time, read that book. I think it's fantastic. Anyway, so Dr. Newman, what we do here on the second segment, it's called Rocket Fire. What we do at Rocket Fire, sir, is I'm going to ask you a series of 10 questions. These questions will be politically and economically related. And if you can answer these questions between 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be badass. Dr. Newman, are you ready to play Rocket Fire? Rocket Fire. I guess I've never been more ready in my life. Here we go. Question one. In an anarcho-capitalist society, how can land and natural resources become private property without forcibly denying these commodities from others? Well, I guess uh, in our capitalist society, uh, the main principle is homesteading. So can you appropriate the, can you mix your labor with the resources before someone else has used it? So if you're on an island or you're in an unsettled area, you basically have to have some way of mixing your labor with it you know, cutting down trees, building a house, whatever, before someone else did. And then that's not really interfering with uh, with their rights or, you know, violating their uh, private property. So that's that's the way uh, it can be done in a anarcho-capitalist society, at least I would say. Bam. Great answer. Question two. Could you explain the relationship between the principle of utility and the harm principle? So <laughs> uh, John Stuart Mill is not my favorite theorist, but Basically, the utility, uh, the principle of utility in his framework just says that happiness is the ultimate criterion. Mm-hmm. So for something that's moral. So if it makes people happy, then that's what's important. And in particular, what it makes, if it causes the most happiness. 
Okay. Uh, on the other hand, the harm principle says that basically you can interfere with like, people can do stuff on, unless it harms someone else, and mm-hmm. then you know society or the government has a right to interfere with them. So it's kind of circular in that. Okay, well, what uh, is acceptable in the end is just whatever promotes the most happiness, sort of. And you know what would limit that is oh, if you follow the harm principle, Mill says that's what's going to happen. So it's just a straight utilitarian. Uh, reasoning, basically. Rock and roll. That's a that was a tough question. Question three: Is ignorance the root cause of prejudice and injustice? Uh, is ignorance the root cause of prejudice and injustice? Hmm. I think that's a subjective question. I have to say no. I have okay. to say envy. I think too many people actually know the consequences of their actions, but they just still do it uh, because they actually want to bring about, or they just don't like the people who they're, who they're doing something. I don't think it's ignorance. I think it's envy or greed or one of the seven deadly sins, I guess. Very interesting. Very interesting. Good take. Question four. What is the difference between a valid argument and an argument with a true conclusion? Hmm. So at least the way I would look at it is it's something regarding um, soundness, sort of not validity. So a valid argument, if you have some initial assumptions, uh-huh. Uh, and then you have the logical chain of reasoning. So you say, if A, then A implies B, B implies C, et cetera. So you could have a valid argument. You know, you can make an entire argument based off of the existence of ghosts, right. but it's not going to have a true conclusion if it's based off of the existence of ghosts. So you actually have to have the initial assumptions, in a sense, be correct if you want to have uh, the true conclusion. Because if A is false, then B is false, then C is false, et cetera, et cetera. So you can have a logical structure. Again, it's all based on the assumption initially. That's at least how I would look at it. Bam. Great answer. Great answer. Question five. What are some important economic claims that can be known a priori? So basically a priori uh, refers to you can know something without sort of uh, experience. Um, And the main one is the, uh, at least depending on your perspective, it's the action axiom. It's that people act, people are purposive, they use means to achieve ends, sort of to achieve goals. Right. And from that, from that statement sort of flows various other things that I mentioned is that uh, people act in order to uh, achieve a higher level of satisfaction, you know, to get utility or usefulness. Uh, time is involved in an action because in order to act, you know, there has to be a, a past and a present and a future, so to speak, and things right. like that. So the main one I would say is, you know, the action axiom, you know, where people act. Bam. Question six. What is inflation? What causes it? And what are the effects? Well, I guess uh, if I was a neoclassical economist, I'd say inflation is the increase in the price level. Uh, however, as, the, as a good Austrian, I'd say inflation is the increase in the money supply. Mm-hmm. And it leads to the higher prices. And what basically leads to also is a redistribution of income. So the people who get the new money first benefit at the expense of the people who get the money last. So that's why inflation, excuse me, is known as a tax because it, it's a it's a hidden way of redistributing income from the people who receive the money last to the people who receive the money first, and that's why governments do it all the time. Right, and then yeah, so they'll print money to get their main project. They'll have all the buying power of the money before it was printed. You know, it hasn't caught up with it yet, and it steals the value from everything else. Uh, question seven: Should somebody hoard money? Is that a good idea? So it's a good idea. Well, I guess so. In a sense, it's a normative statement. I mean, it really depends on what your uh, what your goal is. I mean, people will hold a cash balance or they they keep money in a bank account mainly to alleviate uncertainty. 
because they might want to save the money. They don't want to spend it on consumer goods or block it in some sort of permanent investment, uh, like buying bonds or stocks. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't think people hold enough money. I think people are ridiculously illiquid. So yeah, <laughs> I guess in that sense, um, I you know you go you know hoarding. At least people should stop uh, living beyond their means so much. So yeah, you know. <laughs> right on. Is there anything about Austrian economics that maybe you don't agree with? Um, no, not really. There's only particular types of Austrian, uh, you know, economics or certain certain strands that I would disagree with. Okay. I know Milton Friedman once had the, you know, the saying that there's no such thing as Austrian economics, only good economics and bad economics. I kind of flip it. I say there's no such thing as good economics or bad economics, only Austrian economics and everything else. Exactly. Yeah. So you're 100% behind it. Yeah. All right. Question nine. What is time preference? And can you maybe explain this to our listeners? So time preference refers to the fact that basically people prefer present consumption to future consumption. And make a long story short, it's because time is scarce and it's sort of a means to be economized. So other things equal, you want to accomplish things as soon as possible so you can move on to other things. Now, this excludes things where the actual value is based on uh, sort of the, the dating, so to speak. So it's, people have a preference for present consumption over future consumption. The specific premium uh, is basically the rate of time preference or interest. So you always prefer $100 now to $100 in the future, like one year from now. Right. But you prefer $100 now as opposed to $103. If no, then all right, at least based off the information, your rate of time preference is say 3%. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I would wait a year from now for $1,000 instead of having the $100 an hour, you know? Right, yeah. All right, question 10. For Austrians, what is the ultimate cause of market prices? Well, it would come from basically utility. So what is the what is the good, you know, when you have a market price, say, for something like consumer goods, what can the consumer goods be used for? Uh, and what ends do they satisfy? So the ultimate reason why things have a high price is because they are valued highly by consumers. Uh, they have a high utility for consumers. And in a sense, for an already produced, uh, as Austrians always are at pains to emphasize, for an already produced supply of a good, the price is determined exclusively by the demand for the good, or in a sense, which has come from utility. Bam. I have a bonus question. You're going to love it. How come you press harder on a remote control when you know the battery's dead inside? I just got to know, why do people do it? Because they're hoping that they have just enough juice left to get them that one channel they need to change. Yeah. Uh, or it's just some sort of cathartic release of energy to try and like slam your finger on the rubber as much as possible and just the hope by like some sort of divine miracle inspiration. <laughs> You won't have to get off your cat. Get you know, get off from your cat. Yeah, because you know when you hit the first floor button in the elevator, right? You just keep hitting the button. It's not going to go any faster, but we do it. It's some sort of mental. It's like a quick mental fix. I don't know what it is, but anyway, so that's Rocket Fire. Give it up for Patrick Newman. Great job on Rocket Fire. Anyway, so this is Johnny Rocket. Going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Rock and roll.
talking to Dr. Patrick Newman. Thank you so much for being here on the show. That was a pretty tough rocket fire. I'm sorry, sir, but you kicked butt on that. You kicked, yeah. you kicked ass on that. You did a really good job on that. And again, man, the first few were kind of difficult. I was going, maybe I'm going to go into some really crazy libertarian philosophy stuff. And you nailed it. So, damn. You showed me the questions that I was like, damn, Johnny, that is uh, intense. Let's some do pretty, this. That's pretty that's tough stuff. That's why I said stuff. go for the long answers. Just yeah, do it. They're pretty <laughs> tough. So, Raylene, take it away. All right. If, uh, if Rothbard wrote a book about current politics and economics, what do you think he'd spend the most time on? And what do you think he'd say? Well, uh, he'd certainly spend a lot of time on the financial crisis as well mm-hmm. as the run-up to the financial crisis and definitely a lot of the policies taken by, uh, you know, President George, you know, Bush at the end, you know, bailing out the banking system as well as things like Dodd-Frank, you know, the banking regulation and Obamacare passed, uh, you know, obviously in the Obama administration. Uh, so he would spend a lot of time on that. Uh, but then he would definitely criticize uh, you know, a lot of the stuff now, so especially sort of a lot of the very uh, rampant, you know, socialism, you know, socialist mm-hmm. policies on the left, you know, the things like the Green New Deal and, um, you know, all, all sorts of, you know, grandiose uh, plans they have for getting rid of, of, of cows and, and planes and, um, <laughs> you know, things regarding social security. Uh, he would also criticize a lot of some of the definitely some of the policies on the on the right regarding, uh, you know, it's the move away from uh, free trade and just generally more supportive intervention. Um, he would probably comment, at least in some respects, favorably on Trump and just sort of that whole approach, uh, you know, it, it relates to the politics and stuff. But it would all be intermeshed basically with the uh, with the economics. So I think he would definitely consider the left to be a bigger threat right now than the, than the right. I, yeah, and I agree. that's usually the case as long as the foreign policy is restrained in general. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, based on your understanding of Rothbard, actually getting into his head while you're studying him, what did you learn most about him? Was Rothbard as nice of a guy as people make him out to be? What do you think? Mm-hmm. So we're both from the same area in a sense of so Rothbard lived in New York City his entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, um, you know, he, he had that whole sort of, uh, persona, um, you know, he, he lived in New York city. I, I mean, my brother actually lives in New York city. I'm from New Jersey. So not that far away. Um, I knew some people, you know, I, I knew some people who knew him, um, or, you know, have those, some, some kind of distant, uh, personal connections, at least with some of the people, mm-hmm. uh, who, who, who know him. Uh, so I, you, you definitely, I think he was very nice to you. In person, he had a great sense of humor, so sort of very sarcastic, uh, very, you know, kind of very biting. Uh, if he wanted to criticize you, you know, he would criticize you. Uh, in many ways, it's just kind of par for the course for people from the Northeast. Um, you know, like my first time uh, when I came down south, I was like, wow, everyone's really polite here. And then I realized, I'm like, no, may- maybe it's just me. <laughs> um, you know, may- maybe I'm just impatient. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, just, just people from the Northeast in general. Uh, but you know, you, you definitely get that. And he had a fabulous sense of humor, at least from my, you know, very, very similar in that regard. Right. Uh, but I mean, he, 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 he could be very nice. Uh, you know, if you, if, if you liked the stuff that you were doing, uh, he would give you the world, at least from what I understand. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, it does seem like he has a sense of humor because it, it seems like Rothbard is kind of an epic troll. 
to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because he writes it in such an intellectual way, but he knows that he's knocking down the BS. Like he knows who's going to get mad. He knows that people aren't going to like that's what he a says, good, That's but, a good word. Epic but, troll. That's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah. Yeah, with the truth. He's armed with the the actual, he's the greatest observer. He is a, a wonderful data processor that understands the spirit of the things that he's talking about and observing and is able to to write it down and give share that um, and, and convey all that. So uh, what I was going to ask you about, because we we're talking about him being a nice guy, was about his sentimentality. Uh, because he's so intellectual, because he spends so much time observing and then relaying that information through a new package and a in a way of saying it. Is he a sentimentalist? What topic was he the most sentimental about? Was there any time that you felt like kind of an emotional connection to what he was writing? Oh, I, I mean, he was very passionate, obviously, about, you know, liberty and, and, and things like that. Now, one of the things that I could, his career, he definitely could have been someone who was much more successful mm-hmm. uh, if he kind of played the game, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Of um, course. But he decided to kind of have an underground existence. He was like, all right, I want to you know, comment on a bunch. I'm not going to do things the way academics usually do it. I want to kind of communicate to the people. Um, I'm not going to go through sort of these normal channels or write in a certain way. You know, I'm going to state my, uh, you know, what I believe in. So I think in history, when he was always big on kind of highlighting like the little guy sort of, Mm -hmm. um, or the neglected person in something and kind of taking down usually the the famous people who were sort of well-known or looked upon in a favorable light. And I mentioned like Correct. Benjamin Franklin and, you know, George Washington, you know, those guys. And I think, you know, in a sense, he probably put himself in those kind of shoes where he was like, all right, you know, because he was sort of the guy who was being overlooked. So he was almost like maybe like reading himself kind of into the history. You know, that's right. Beautiful. Yeah. Like the revolt that he wrote about a specific revolt before in the colonies. Right. And I never even heard about it. I can't remember the guy's I name. I about plenty of those. Something like Bacon's Rebellion. Bacon's Rebellion. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Oh, well, I mean, so um, in the 1600s, basically, you had a lot of the colonies. Great Britain was sort of for various reasons, uh, foreign policy and internally preoccupied. Uh, and so some of the colonies uh, would try and revolt from time to time. Mm-hmm. So you had something like, you know, Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia in 1676, Morris's Rebellion in New York, I want to say like 1689, and then like Lessler's Rebellion, uh, Lessler's Rebellion in New York in 1689, Morris's Rebellion in 1699, something like that. So a bunch of sporadic kind of revolts where you know, there were some sort of illiberal reasons and then like pro-liberal reasons, but they were kind of movements in liberty either. In many ways, they're like, oh, we're now going to, you know, take independence. You'd have some leaders who would do so. The issue, though, is it's the kind of the classic liberty versus power where basically power corrupts. So you have these guys who then they, they get, you know, they take the reins of power. You know, they lead kind of some rebellion and then they become very corrupt and sort of Dictator, you know, you know, like a dictator, right? And that's why they usually collapse because the people lost interest in it, and then Britain was like, "All right, we're now gonna, you know, we, we you know, we now kind of clean house, so to speak." Sure. Very interesting. But, you know, after studying Rothbard, getting into his head, deciphering the book, was there anything in the in the book in volume five that surprised or shocked you? You didn't see coming like, holy cow, I didn't know that I didn't know that he would think this or Good was one. there anything that was just mind blowing you? Yeah, Um, there was definitely some 
you know, elements there that he, I was, I was just like, wow, you know, he, I think well, part of it is because he never, like for the progressive era, like he wrote plenty of essays on the progressive era. And so you kind of knew, especially if you listen to his lectures, uh, you kind of knew like sort of the book. It was really just like, oh, he actually wrote part of it out. And this is really cool. That whole 1780s, that whole period, you're like, he, you know, he never spoke about this before. So, you, you know, you literally have like, it's like in your back pocket. You're like, oh, yeah, I got a 300 page book. Like, you know, <laughs> stuff I've never, you know, I've never really written about elsewhere. But, you know, I got in the, you know, I got in the reserve, so to speak. Um, but, you know, initially I was surprised he, you know, he criticizes uh, people like uh, James Madison a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he j- just, I mean, just the general approach, I don't want to give too much away. Uh, but yeah, you know, no. de- definitely a lot of stuff and, and, and just really in terms of his knowledge and his he's literally sometimes he would go through like particular delegates at like the ratifying conventions and being like, oh, these guys betrayed the, vis- the wishes of their constituents and then tying in this monetary interest, this monetary interest. And, you know, you're just like, wow. what's going, you know, yeah. especially when you're translating it. It's one thing to read it and type it in, but it's another thing when you're like, you're, 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 you're literally, you know, you're the only person on the planet, you know, I guess who who has read this, he probably didn't intend anyone else to ever be able to read his handwriting or whatever. And you're just kind of going through it and it's sort of like you're dusting off and it's literally like a piece of history. Wow. It's so cool. It is so cool. Well, okay. So, so now that, I mean, obviously you studied everything he's done and now you, you've deciphered the fifth installment here. So with conceived in Liberty in mind, let me ask you, is there anything new under the sun? What's your take on the similarities and the differences of the world we have today and what we read in history? Oh, that's a good question. So I uh, I think history generally repeats itself. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. there's some different, obviously, things change. Technology changes, people change, values change. But I think it's, 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 it's very similar. I think a lot of the battles that you hear about today, in various ways, they were being fought either like a hundred years ago, kind of during the progressive era, or even before, like in the, in the, you know, the constitution, constitutional era. Uh, I mean, even things regarding like states' rights and sovereignty and stuff. But I mean, in general, I mean, because the, the theme, the underlying sort of motif, I guess you could say, the underlying current is always sort of this battle between liberty and power, sort of the voluntary society versus the coercive society in how, you know, traditionally, whenever you have some sort of liberal movement, it, you know, the great at sort of running the campaign, but then it always kind of drops the ball. You know, there's a famous Lord Acton saying, you know, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm-hmm. And this is something that you see time and time again, uh, over and over. And it's just kind of like, oh yeah, you know, this is, this has been going on for, for hundreds of years, basically. Thousands. Very, yeah. very cool. Hey, what books did Rothbard read? You know, cause you said he was an economic historian, but what books did he read? to arrive at his conclusions and then to paint his pictures in volume five or throughout the entire Conceived in Liberty series. So this is because there's actually a a funny story about this. Uh, So at least in terms of the Conceived in Liberty series, one book that he was influenced by was this guy, uh, it was written in the 60s by this guy named Bernard Bellin, who is a very famous American historian. He wrote this book, The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. His dissertation student, who now is very old, uh, his name is Gordon Wood. And if you've ever seen the movie Goodwill Hunting, yes, uh, very famous scene where Matt Damon's like, "Oh, you got your Gordon Wood," and that's basically like his. Even though he's like super acclaimed, like you know, academics and historians, they know him. Like that's how like popular people, if they've heard of him, they have heard of him. So uh, he was very influenced by 
uh, Bernard Berlin, uh, particularly when we're talking about the American Revolution. And there's a funny story about this, and I'll mention this, is um, so when I was working on the project, Rothbard initially, when he was working on this in the 1960s, he uh, was at least through the research, the place that was giving him the, the research funds was scheduled to, all right, send parts of the manuscript to people who would right. then read it. Mm-hmm. And Bernard Berlin was actually, uh, he, he, he wrote to Bernard Berlin in like the 1960s about whether or not he would read basically what became volumes four and five. And because he never finished volume five, he basically never followed up and, you know, all that stuff. So there's a letter in the archives where he writes to Bernard Berlin, like, 1965 basically hey will you read this thing mm-hmm. and obviously that never came to fruition you know fruition one of the funny things is so bernard Berlin is still alive he's 96 <laughs> um he's a professor emeritus at harvard which basically means it's like you get the title of professor but you're retired or you know whatever he's 96 so i was like you know what yeah screw it went in rome i'm gonna email him sure. uh, this is email time and I uh, email him and I even scanned the letter. I was like, hey, so do you remember like this project someone might have spoke to you about like 60, you know, like 50 <laughs> years ago? You know? Wow. And I email him, and this is a true story. I email him at say like 10, 15 in the morning. And I get an email back from him at like 10, 35. Like okay. literally within 20 minutes. This, 90, this 96 year old man, you know, super nice guy. Uh, which meant he either was really interested in the project or had like a lot of free time on his hands. <laughs> and he was like, oh, thanks for letting me know about this. Um, sorry, I don't have any like records from it, but I'm glad you're finishing the project. And I felt kind of bad when he emailed me is because the font was much, it was bigger. It was like the size 16 font or 18. Or, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I was, you know, you know, he's an older guy. Yeah, I can't see. 96 of these emails, but I was like, you know, you, you get a response. You know, I was expecting like maybe to hear from him in like a week or two or whatever, but it's like, eh, you know, 20 minutes later, you know, you hear back, and you're like, oh, okay. That's you know, crazy. Pretty <laughs> so, yeah, you know, that must have been a blast for the past for him. Oh, yeah. That's that's a great story. That's a great story. Really quick, one more thing. Tell us about your, you know, your experience editing Rothbard's, uh, Rothbard's book, The Progressive Era, and what were the challenges you faced during that book? Like, what were some of the, the hurdles you had to jump over? Right. So that's a good question. So in total, I edited basically three things of Rothbard. The first was an unpublished chapter of Man, Economy, and State uh, on production theory, much more of like a narrow kind of mainly appeal to people who are like historians of thought or, you know, know, academics. Sure. Um, That was kind of the easiest project. It was about like an 80 page manuscript kind of piecing it together. It was mostly typed, you know, typed out. The progressive era was, uh, you know, tougher project and then conceiving delivery is an even tougher project so it's basically like you know slowly taking the training wheels off uh, <laughs> the progressive era was part of it was actually the manuscript was so the the archives i mean he has tons of stuff and it was sort of scattered uh throughout the archives it was actually in a sense kind of like discovering the progressive era you know mm-hmm. discovering the actual manuscript that's just sort of all over the place and what's we, we had the at least was the, the benefit was he would number his pages. So it'd be typewritten pages on the typewriter. He'd number his pages. Be like chapter six. So it'd be like six dash thirty six. Page thirty six of chapter six. Okay. And if the book came out in say September of twenty seventeen, when I was at the Mises Institute, it was basically June of twenty seventeen, and I had all the pages from the original manuscript except for like four. And it was huh. a chapter six. And I'm like, ah, where are these things? Because you, because he had pages before and after. 
So he definitely wrote them. And I'm like, maybe he threw them out or whatever. Right. And so I was just trying to dig through all sorts of stuff. And I knew that my one hunch was, okay, because he spoke about this. Um, like he, he, he had in his class lectures on the progressive era, he spoke about similar, similar topics. So I was literally digging through his class, his, his notes. And Rothbard was the type of teacher who he would literally have like scraps of paper and just kind of <laughs> scribble stuff on the board. Right. And I was, you know, digging through things, you know, that hasn't been touched in like 30 years, like when he was last doing this in the 80s. And I finally found the pages because they were like a bunch of charts because he wanted to bring up some statistics on, you know, voting or politics in the progressive era. And he probably just brought them to class and then sandwiched them between his notes. And then like they were just kind of lost the time. And I, I found them like there was a, a rusty stapler, like, you know, excuse me, paperclip, like linking them together. So it was like fusing the pages. I'm like, I got them. Yeah. Wow. Very, it's like finding yeah, treasure. That's probably the biggest challenge. Yeah. Oh, that's such a cool story. God. Okay. So uh, really quick, one last thing. When would the fifth volume conceived in Liberty be available and where can you buy it? Uh, so you, it will be available uh, around basically September, October. So the specific date, I'm not sure yet, but it will be basically early to mid-October. And it's planning, you can get it from Mises.org, so the Mises Institute, as well as Amazon. So you can order the book, uh, basically, at either of those sites. Awesome. Okay, Raylene, prepare for landing. Roger that, Johnny. Seatbelts and shoulder harnesses. Your body, your choice. Landing gear and downward expanders. NAP initiated. Anti-state superchargers. Defragged and woke. Landing lights and guess what? Sides, Dr. Newman, can you give us your dot .com, sir? Um... Oh, geez. I mean, I don't have a website. <laughs> you can just say the Mises.org. Say, Google me, B. <laughs> oh, Mises.org, yeah. There you go. Sorry. And then now the rocket's just going to blow up. I screwed everything up. Seriously, Google him because he's amazing. He's everywhere. It's it's everywhere. Yeah, yes. it's awesome. And no, seriously, great show. Uh, one more thing. Um, if you like our conversation with Dr. Newman, please donate to our show at supportblastoff.com. And what can they get, really? Oh, well, for every dollar and for each episode, you get to hear the listeners put our guest on blast. So that's what we're going to be going and doing right now and at the after party. And if you give $2, you get to also have access to the all-nighter where Johnny and I talk about politics and philosophy and uh, what's going on in this crazy world. A lot of times we swear. <laughs> A lot of times we swear and we talk about things that chap our asses. But anyway, so this is Johnny Rocket, Dr. Dr. Newman. Please stick around. We got the after party coming up. So rock and roll. We'll see you next week. Have a great weekend. <laughs>